And we are here this afternoon. Charles Moskowitz here. And my guest is Jay Dyer from Jay's Analysis. Jay, thank you for joining me. Um, you have tremendous work up on YouTube from Jay's Analysis on issues of theology, philosophy, uh, geopolitics. And I, I just wanted to talk a little bit today, given that it's Memorial Day and that we honor the memory of the great sacrifice of our men and women in uniform and and it makes me think of um, of what they fought and died for, which is uh, an, an open and accountable government and society. And uh, our nation, of course, is based on Judeo-Christian principles, uh, going back, of course, to the to the Book of Genesis. I would argue that's another subject. But but the the thing that bugs me as I as I observe this is thinking about how those very freedoms that they fought for are under assault not only openly but subversively still by forces that operate in the shadows that seek to subvert not only our politics but our culture, our religions, our ideals. And I'm specifically talking about something that you have delved into and I want to get to today, which is the occult influence on American culture and on American society. Now, the reason that I bring this up isn't so much because it is a dark influence and an evil influence, which it is, but because it's subversive, because it's happening in secret, even though it's happening right out in the broad daylight, right in front of our faces. And we ought to identify it and simply then let uh, our fellow viewers and listeners judge for themselves whether or not they think it's a positive and wholesome influence or not. So... Let's go to that and talk a little bit about the history of it, getting into maybe before Alastair Crowley in England and just the whole development of what we might call the modern occult movement. Uh, when do you see that as having begun to emerge in the United States and in our culture? Well, if we wanted to look at medieval alchemy, those those ideas certainly had an influence. Uh, the Renaissance uh, certainly had an influence because of the Neoplatonic tradition. So a lot of Neoplatonism would influence the, the Renaissance. Clearly, uh, the medieval schools of uh, Kabbalism were very influenced by Neoplatonism. Strands of Christianity were influenced by Neoplatonism. So there was a lot of different kind of ideologies that were in a, in a mix here and different schools and traditions would kind of at times go underground. So there would be kind of a public, uh, illegality to this or that practice. But at the same time, the court would have, you know, the court uh, alchemist or astrologer, or the court hermeticist and this kind of stuff. Um, figures like John D come to the fore, who was a, a spy at the same time, he's developing this uh, secret uh, angelic language that he called it Enochian. And he would try to write, you know, letters back and forth to the queen. Um, there are uh, rabbis that you could look to in Prague that, that continue the notion of uh, the, the idea of creating the golem, uh, Isaac Luria, uh, mm -hmm. these, these kinds of figures, Casabon, uh, uh, if I recall, some of the uh, Spanish uh, tradition as well. So there's these different schools and groups that all kind of have uh, competing ideologies that influence what will become the Enlightenment tradition, the revolutionary tradition, um, ultimately the scientific tradition, I would argue. I would argue there is a, a, a 
hermetic component to the scientific revolution. But uh, long story short, a lot of these traditions will go into the Masonic Lodge. A lot of these traditions will go into other schools of the occult, Rosicrucianism, this kind of stuff. So when we come to the modern period, uh, even though after Darwin, a lot of that stuff dies out, at the turn of the century, there's a, a reflourishing of, of esoteric uh, spiritualist ideas. And you get the explosion of the ideas of like, okay, let's go to mediums and seances. And this became very popular in Victorian England. Uh, and so that's an element here. And ironically, pop culture, uh, what surprised me, I think, when I was researching the Hollywood book was that it's actually Germany that really pioneered the open usage of the satanic. The German expressionist movements were the first in film to self-consciously use the satanic, which is, if you think of something like uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you'll notice the inverted pentagram and the the uh, robot woman being created, you know, at the base mm -hmm. of the pentagram. And, and, and it, it is self-consciously satanic in that, in that genre of film. Uh, and then that will, I think, influence even today you see people like Beyonce, they're doing these uh, concerts where she's like the, the ro dressed up like the robot in the metropolis. So, yeah. So, so this kind of stuff continues on and there's, there's a lot of different strands of influence, but um, it's going to be the same in pop music. It's going to be the same in uh, fashion. I always forget fashion as part of, you know, pop culture, but fashion will also be influenced by these, uh, these ideas as well. And I think that the, the idea of, inversion is the problem here because in a lot of the animistic or magical traditions the idea is that if you flip something invert something you get a negative force a negative power that you can kind of control and if you wanted to uh change society then you could see how you might want to flip or invert something to move it into a different sphere move it into a different direction now you talk about inversion, which of course is the is the founding principle of the satanic movement, the idea of taking the Catholic mass and inverting it so that everything that happens is turned upside down, literally, as a way of bringing about some kind of a spiritual messianic experience. The same thing could be said in Judaism, not so much of the Luriatic school of Kabbalah, but of its misinterpretation by Shabtai Zvi, the false messiah who literally called for the inversion of all Jewish law and tradition and culture and was excommunicated by his rabbis for doing so, but who launched a secretive movement within Judaism mm -hmm. called Sabadianism that has ever since subverted elements of Judaism and has been pretty successful at it. But I want to go back to the what this idea is. I mean, you mentioned Neoplatonism I see it as beginning to show some muscle in the early Christian church in the form of the Gnostic movement and the Manichean movement and the Arian, the Arian heresy. You've had this struggle both within Judaism and Christianity from day one. I mean, we could trace it back to the Garden of Eden if we want to look at it biblically, mm -hmm. that it's the idea that, that, uh, that man can overthrow God in heaven and become supreme and that a cult of enlightened elites would uh, operate as a as a transmitter of this yep. great knowledge to all of mankind and assume the right indeed the moral responsibility to control all of mankind and it's a it is a conspiracy in the broad sense because they do operate in secret and that every generation from the days of Adam and Eve right till today we have to deal 
with this. And the best way to do so is to do what you do, Jay, and what I try to do in my own small way, which is to expose it and to uh, alert people to the insidious nature of it. So you're bringing things up to today's culture. And I see this movement as particularly dangerous today because of technology, because of mass communication, the ability to send messages to the entire world at the flick of a mouse on a computer, and you know the ability to to use the resources of uh, to 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 push that message. A lot of the ideas that are now being used were developed by ad genius Edward Bernays in his book Propaganda. Mm-hmm. He was, I believe, a, a a nephew or a cousin to Sigmund Freud, and the whole psychological enterprise is all about this kind of mind control, this this ability to manipulate the masses. And it was, yeah, please. Well, yeah, yeah. There, uh, it reminds me, there's, there's a great documentary that uh, came out around 2002 or three. It's called uh, Unabomber, The Nat, The Unabomber and MKUltra, and, and talks about how you know he w- went into the uh, experimentation. Well, he willingly went into being experimented on. Uh, some people think that could have given rise to whatever his split he had where he you know had to run off into the woods and do his mm-hmm. <laughs> uh henry somebody was talking the other day about it about uh that it was like he was trying to be like thoreau like go off into the woods and get away from civilization or something like anyway but mm-hmm. the point is that uh in that documentary they talk about a lot of these uh generals and and high level pentagon people who at the time of the counterculture revolution uh you know 60s they they were all tripping acid with everybody else now there's a there's a wild book that it's written for Catholics, but what he shows in that book is David Wimhoff's book about John Courtney Murray, who was a famous Jesuit. Now he was right. tripping acid. I didn't know this, but I, I <laughs> so he's tripping he was, acid. Yeah, he was in the circles of like Leary, and I, so he was getting acid from the CIA. He was tripping acid, and he was uh, uh, attempting to get the Roman Catholic Church to get online with the CIA and this kind of stuff. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other story. But the point is that a lot of the figures in Hollywood and in the Pentagon were all sort of experimenting with LSD to have these experiences to get inspiration and ideas. And if that, in that, in that documentary, they talk about a lot of these generals had, had done acid as well. And then that they were coming to this conclusion that you could create this kind of Based on the ideas of like Teilhard de Chardin of the neosphere, that there's this mental realm, and if we could create a mirror of this mental realm, then we could create something like the internet. So the internet is kind of born out of these people, these Silicon Valley weirdos who were, you know, tripping acid and stuff like this. So I've always found that very interesting. I I think it's something worth looking into. And in fact, there's a book uh, by, he's not a conspiracy guy, just a mainline guy. His name is Jay Stevens, and he wrote a history of. LSD and the counterculture, and his, it's called Storming Heaven, and it's named after what you just said, the idea that we could storm heaven, which is a quote from Crowley, mm-hmm. uh, and that we can destroy the, the divine order, storm heaven, invert things. Uh, and in that book, he talks about uh, a lot of those countercultural cu- cultural figures, whether it was uh, Hoffman, Ginsburg, um, uh, Crowley, Leary, they all had this occult background that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, wow. Leary, Leary was a huge devotee of Crowley, and people don't know this. They think he was just some guy who was tripping acid. No, he was actually had a, 
a really serious uh, occult perspective that he was trying to convert people over to. He even said that. He says, I, he says, I see myself as the continuation of the work of Aleister Crowley. And he says, if you want to thank anybody for the whole countercultural revolution, he says, you can thank me and the CIA. Amazing. And also, uh, uh, Courtney Murray was held up as the greatest American Catholic thinker of his day. He was on the cover of Time magazine, which was run by, you know, the sort of the Stolen wasp bones. elite, yep. you know, exactly. the, you know, who's a, a loose and, and, and them. And he also was a, a big influence on Father Theodore Hesburgh, who was the chancellor of Notre Dame and who has been uh, accused of subverting Notre Dame and turning it into a, 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 a sort of a, a counterculture Mm -hmm. rejection of Catholic orthodoxy. Uh, so you have an infiltration of the Catholic Church, at least in the United States, by this very counterculture that we're talking about here. Um, the same can be said for most Protestant denominations, certainly for Judaism. Uh, you know, they, they work their way into the fabric of all the major religions with this idea of removing the moral and ethical precepts of the Torah and replacing it with some kind of a relativistic new age uh, mantra that uh, redefines whatever morality is based upon their whim, which is the very sin of the Garden of Eden. Yes. Now, you mentioned Aleister Crowley as a major factor and influencer. He was, I think, late 19th, early 20th century. I don't know what you call him, a Satanist, but... Uh, his name pops up a lot in in rock music and in modern uh, culture. You know, I think that he was a big. Uh, he's he's more explicitly embraced by I believe I think Led Zeppelin certainly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, uh, Osborne. I mean, all these guys who basically are saying, let's you know, the, the ultimate virtue is to subvert the order of the universe and conventional understandings of what exists and what is, and what is good and bad, and to replace it with a, a, a living, a, a literal hedonism, that everything, the only thing that matters is what you feel, and what you think, and that, you know, it's all tactile experience, that's the entire nature of existence, there is no past, there is no future, everything is what no. you want it yeah. to be, I mean, I suppose, in, if we take a look at various presidents of the United States, the president that most embodied that, I, I would say, would be Bill Clinton. But anyway, how dare, uh, you? How dare yeah. you, Charles? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, but talk a bit on Crowley because I think his influence was huge. It was. I, I'm still wondering how and why he got to be so popular. That that's still a mystery to me because uh, I'm not a Crowley expert. I've read a significant amount of stuff about him in a couple of the books. Um, I did have a professor on, you might find an interesting guest if you wanted to get him. His name is Dr. Richard Spence, and he wrote a history of Crowley. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, uh, it's about his relationship to British intelligence. So he was an asset for a time period for British intelligence, just kind of doing minor like propaganda type of work. And uh, there was a, an operation where they wanted to bring him in to utilize him as this figure to try to influence Rudolf Hess. Which is all very fascinating. That's a, Ian Fleming was a, an, indirectly involved in that. Uh, Ian never met Crowley, but he was involved in that uh, operation, which was spearheaded, I think, by Wheatley. And then Dennis Wheatley, when he writes his novels, he, Crowley influences a lot of the villains, particularly the Mokata character in uh, Devil Rides Out, which is, stars Christopher Lee. It's a really good movie. Um, and then 
Fleming uh, consciously utilized Crowley for uh, Blofeld and Le Chifa, two of the Bond villains. So he, he has this pop influence that seems to be begin with, you know, British uh, spy fiction and literature that sort of propels him into being this uh, counterculture figure. And then we get the character of Kenneth Anger, who is just this total degenerate guy uh, who makes these uh, avant-garde films. And he he's the first that I know of self-consciously Crowleyan filmmaker. And he's in the circles of Rolling Stones and Polanski and all those characters, Sharon Tate, right? So I think uh, is it, I think Mick Jagger, uh, uh, one of the Manson people, and somebody else, Sharon Tate, I think, is in one of the, the Kenneth Anger films, Lucifer Rising. And so this sort of, in his in Anger's mind, is a way to kind of kick off this Crowleyan aeon or age where we can finally overthrow the the dominion of god as you said right um but but crowley himself seems to be this kind of uh a, a bit of a showman figure like anton LaVey. he seemed to really enjoy the 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 infamy of being called the 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 most evil man or the the wickedest man in the world which actually the the media gave him that title and he sort of ran with it he loved it mm. and so he was useful as a pop culture figure uh, even before there was pop culture as we know it today. So he was kind of given this role in the media. He had this relationship with the intelligence agencies. And this is something we'll begin to see with a lot of these pop culture figures that they will have a lot of times military intelligence backgrounds. Their families will have this. This will help them be connected. Uh, and and that that's just because the two worlds of occult and secret societies and cults blends very well with agencies like, you know, that deal with intelligence is because you can traffic in secrets. So anyway... Uh, yeah, so Crowley is just this figure that I think, um, I mean, he ended up, you know, he died like a, a, a poor, broke dope addict. So he didn't die in, as a god. You know, he thought of himself as some sort of deity. He's, he was channeling the, you know, uh, the Egyptian uh, uh, Rahor Kuit or whoever it was, Iwas. He was channeling the revelation of Iwas, which is what his book of the law is supposed to be, is this uh, direct revelation of the Egyptian deities and this kind of stuff. But what, what I think is the most relevant to what you were saying with Crowley is that there's this dictum that comes out of his philosophy, which is not just do what thou wilt. There's also the dictum uh, that all actions and all events are equal. So there's this notion that good and evil are purely relative. That's the key mm -hmm. here. Right. Now, Crowley himself was an elitist. So I don't want to say that he, he wasn't like a Marxist or a communist. He was a super elitist. He said, everybody who's not a part of my cult is a slave and they need to be slaves to my cult. But he says basically that, yeah, all actions are ultimately equalized. So there's no good. There's no evil. Whatever you think of good and evil is just reverse flip sides of the same coin. And the individual magician is who can determine that reality. And the strongest magician in a kind of Nietzschean sense is the one who can enforce his will on most people, the most people. So that's the, the mindset here is us. It's, it's a Nietzschean, uh, uh, Crowley and Nietzsche go together very well. You know, it's interesting the intersection between um, the, the occult and the uh, what we might loosely oh, call a satanic one, movement. One thing that reminded me, I'm sorry, I mean, yeah. one thing I want to say about Nietzsche, a lot of people don't know this. There's evidence, and I cannot find this picture, but there's actually evidence. There's uh, evidence that it, towards the later days of his, when he was writing uh, their Zarathustra, uh, Nietzsche himself got into the occult. A lot of people don't know this, but anyway, go ahead. Oh, well, no, and that was a huge influence on the 60s counterculture. Exactly. Uh, but, but there's a great intersection between 
secret societies that might be promoting a more, a more satanic agenda and overthrow of the social order and intelligence, government agents and government agencies. And this goes way back. I think it probably goes back in every generation. I think in the Middle Ages, it was manifested in the involvement of uh, the Knights Templar and the Rosicrucian societies. We don't know the history of it because it was secret. It's hard to find that history. I think that in modern times, it really was launched in a big way by the establishment of the Illuminati in Bavaria, by the Sabadian cult, as we mentioned earlier, which emanated from Chavtes V and his successor, Jacob Frank and his Frankists. And that eventually it got into influencing a, a darker side of the French Revolution, which actually was very much an attempt by the French people to, to have an American-style government uh, with limited powers to the king. And it was mm -hmm. the, the actual revolution itself went off without a single shot. I mean, basically, Louis XVI signed an agreement re reconvening the Estates General and accepting a, a constitutional monarch and the writing of a of a uh, constitution which is what the people of france wanted they they were influenced by the united states by the american revolution which was actually a counter-revolution against total government on the part of the british monarch and parliament and and yet th that was subverted three years later by the reign of terror and by secret societies and abe barrowell who wrote a two-volume set on the topic along with Scottish philosopher Robeson, who wrote uh, Proofs of a Conspiracy, link that event to the Illuminati. Now, that's sort of standard history in Europe. When you talk about that in the United States, they think, you know, you're putting on the tin hat and, you know, they think you're crazy. But, you know, this is not even anything that's controversial. I mean, Winston Churchill wrote about this extensively. It's not right. even a big deal. But you know, it, it then gets into the development of the mafia in Italy under the mm. under the influence of Mazzini yes. and the infiltration of Masonic lodges in the United States under the influence of Albert Pike and and on to today, where you have this intersection of these secret societies that had been utilized and infiltrated by this satanic element. And most of the Masonic societies were fine. I mean, I would talk about those that had been co-opted by the Illuminati in the late 18th century. And by the way, something that Washington took note of in a letter that's, right. uh, uh, that you can right. read at the Masonic Lodge in Alexandria, he knew about this. And right up till today in the establishment of the, the, uh, the security state after World War II, the uh, OSS becomes the CIA in 1948 uh, uh, due to a direct executive order from, from Truman and you have this continual cross-pollinization between the intelligence apparatus and and its growth, and these secret and either outright secret societies, but certainly the ideas that they embrace. What do you? What kind of? Do you have any information about that, Jay? There's always been a, a the state has always had an interest in religion, obviously, and the way that it could be used as a tool of the state. So in the history of, well, in the Old Testament or in the, the books of the law, the prophets, you see this struggle at times between the state and the priests, right? The priests, there's even at times where the state, uh, the kings, if they become corrupt, they will even go and murder the priests, right? There's accounts of this in the historical books. 
Uh, we look in the history of the uh, Christianity. There's many periods where you had emperors that wanted to basically uh, mandate what the church had to say. You had kings that tried to install the bishops, and many times they did this. <laughs> uh, even up, we just did a show a couple nights ago about uh, Charlemagne and the Franks. They eventually they just put their cousins uh, into the papacy. And this is where you get this period uh, of the Avignon papacy. It actually comes to France, uh, mm. which is which is kind of hilarious. But uh, you get these French rulers on the king on the throne of the of the of the papacy. The same thing happens with the Borgias. You get Borgia popes. Uh, so there's always been this attempt to to use religion, and the same thing goes for cults. Uh, when we get into the period, as you've mentioned, after so British intelligence and Canadian intelligence, they come and they help set up the OSS. They talk that, in fact, Ian Fleming was actually involved in this. William Stevenson, uh, Noel Coward, they came and helped uh, uh, Bill Donovan set up the OSS. And here's what you need to do: do this, this, this. And then, you know, a few years later, it becomes the CIA. So there was always that, like you said, that that close connection. And a lot of these people themselves also were in the world of acting. Noel Coward was a, a famous actor. Uh, and, and they were also involved in the world of Hollywood, or excuse me, of secret society. So a lot of these people at times, they were part of Masonic Lodges, this kind of stuff. So these worlds have always interconnected. But most relevant, I think, to what you're talking about is how at times cults can be uh, sort of like petri dish or test test tube type things. We can a cult can be something that's used to find dupes, patsies, idiots, weirdos for whatever. Um, and ultimately, in my view, the Roman Catholic Church it's, itself is a great example of this because it it's it's long time ties with different mafias. It's long time ties with intelligence agencies. Is what is part of the the this thing with the pedophilia crisis. A lot of people don't know this, but a lot of that is blackmail. A lot of that is right. compromising. And so you have in the Roman Catholic world itself, different niches of satanic groups and cults. Uh, even famous Roman Catholic traditionalists have exposed this. Uh, Malachi Martin has talked about this. He was an in Vatican insider. He has a whole thing where he talks about the sat satanic networks even within the Vatican. The the chief exorcist of the Vatican has said that there are satanic networks in the Vatican. The guy who died a few years ago, I forget his name, Gabriel Amorth or whatever. So that's another example of this, secret societies within the Vatican that that utilize uh, these these principles. Crowleyans in the Vatican, there have been uh, uh, Cardinal Rampola, was a, he was almost elected pope a long time ago, uh, about 100 years ago, and he was famously a Crowleyan, a devotee of Crowley. So there's a, uh, th th there, there, there's a lot of complexity there to the relationship between those worlds, and they always overlap. They're almost, I'm always amazed at the connection. But um, just in terms of like the modern period, uh, I'm trying to think of a good CIA-sponsored cult. I mean, a lot of people argue something like Scientology, uh, because if you think of the figure of uh, Hubbard, Hubbard actually went through Crowley's uh, rituals, the gradations of the right. And one thing that I noticed with a lot of the, the people who graduated from the Crowley system is that they went on to start their own cults. <laughs> so, so I know of at least two or three right. people who did this. Uh, Gerald Gardner started Wicca after he graduated the Crowley cult. Hubbard started Scientology after he graduated the Crowley cult. And then interestingly, some people will point out that Charles Manson, a lot of people don't know that when he was in prison, he actually went through all the stages of Scientology. 
and then he goes out and he starts his cult. So um, there are always, in, or a lot of times, I should mm-hmm. not always, that there's this intelligence component to the background of cults, and I think at times they can be used as test tubes. Uh, Dave McGowan has a great book on this, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, where he looks at the, the intelligence background to a lot of the Hollywood circles and cults. You know, I think that certainly the cults that we're talking about have infiltrated all of the mainline religions, uh, Catholicism being only one of them. I mean, I'm sure that it's part, you know, the National Council of Churches um, has been affiliated with uh, communism, certainly Judaism. We've already talked about that. Um, Even so, I think that the Catholic Church has maintained its integrity in the broad sense, as have most of the Protestant uh, faiths, as has Judaism in spite of this assault, because you always have enough people who are that, you know, they have to remain secret because, you know, on the surface, there are enough people who are true believers and who are against this, who who they have to, uh, you know, they, they can't get to. So there is still, you know, I, I tend to maybe view it somewhat optimistically. Uh, but yeah, these, these groups have infiltrated and they have made inroads. I see the main uh, tipping point in this country as the establishment of the the um, the security state in 1948, when Truman, um, by executive order, created the CIA, the National Security Council, the DIA, and other agencies, um, Michael Glennon is a professor at the uh, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy here in Boston, um, and he's written a book called Double Government. Now he is. One of the figures of the establishment, he was the Senate counsel during the uh, Clinton administration. He's, you know, kind of a real establishment guy. You might interview him. I've interviewed him. And he he points out that this uh, since 48, this thing has become an octopus in this country and in the world. It's intersected with intelligence agencies in other countries, including the MI5 and Interpol and the Mossad and who knows who else. And it's become this Leviathan that that has sources of money outside of officially sanctioned um, appropriations by Congress, which is the only body that legally is supposed to finance these things. And it has people in place in all branches of government and corporate corporations, including several Supreme Court judges, among them, of all people, Scalia, that were part of this. So, you know, he gets into great detail on it. When I interviewed him, he kind of backed away from me. And he's, oh, I don't know if I see it quite the way you do. <laughs> but, you know, his the facts are there. I mean, this book is very well documented. And it's Michael and Glennon. What's Michael the- Glennon. Michael Glennon, Double Government. Check Double it out. Okay. The, you know, you talk, Jay, about the uh, development during, after the National Security Act of CIA people either outright or influencing people who would play a major role in the counterculture, people like Timothy Leary, people like um, psychiatrist uh, Jolyon West from uh, from UCLA, who was basically handing out uh, windowpane on the streets of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, the, the war on drugs, which resulted in an influx of drugs into the United States. I mean, we, we talked about that. That might be too controversial for YouTube, so let's not go too deep on that one. But the point I'm making here is that uh, the, the CIA has worked hand in glove with elements of the counterculture that seek to subvert American society. 
very much like what we started to talk about, this idea of removing um, objective forms of understanding of morality and uh, of order and of reality itself and replacing it with this holding up as a virtue, this idea, well, certainly the sexual revolution is obviously a part of it, but it's bigger than that. It's the whole overthrow of the culture. Yeah. Why would they do it? Why does the CIA and this is security apparatus want to subvert American culture in that way? Because so if we look back to the beginning of the OSS, the CIA, they're going to be, in my view, the inheritors of the ideology of the Anglo power structure of the British Empire. Now, the Anglo-British Empire had for its governing mythology uh, Darwinism and Malthusianism. And so when the intelligence agencies are set up, uh, or w when the U.S. intelligence apparatus is set up, uh, there's a good book, uh, Servando Gonzalez has a book called uh, Psychological Warfare in the New World Order, and he makes the argument that what you have back at the time of World War One, this predecessor even before that that was called the Inquiry, and they were kind of all this collection of uh, brains and academics who had a lot of the same mindset and ideology of, uh, you know, eugenics, sterilization, all that kind of stuff back around the time of World War One, because, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, the, the, the Institute, the Kaiser himself, actually, he was the predecessor to to the Hitler view, right? So Hitler wasn't the first to talk about this. If you read the Kaiser, he said all the same stuff. He said, yeah, we need to have this, you know, perfectly regimented uh, view of of uh, who's born, who's not born, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, so back even prior to World War II, you had the popularity of you. I know you know this, but of that of that ideology, it was pretty popular in America because a lot of the eastern seaboard elite already adopted that ideology of Malthusianism and, and strict mm -hmm. population control, all this stuff. So the, the intelligence apparatus, I would argue, even back to the World War One under Wilson, or uh, the, the period of the inquiry, I should say, uh, up to the time of its establishment with British intelligence and, and with, with uh, Donovan, they are adopting that elite mindset. They're going to have the same perspective. Uh, and I think the way, uh, the, the way that uh, Gonzalez characterizes it, he says that basically it's like the Rockefeller's private army. So if that if we view it from that perspective, and if you've read Horowitz and his book on the Rockefellers, you know he traces from their own archives and their own perspective, they adopted that that mindset, the strict population control yes. view, and it, so it's all in there. And he and I think Horowitz in that book as well says that it's essentially mm -hmm. this the intelligence age is essentially kind of this arm of the Rockefeller power structure. And so they're adopting the Malthusian view because they share that Anglo-Malthusian-Darwinian uh, perspective. Uh, and then it's there's a whole chapter in Horowitz, Collier and Horowitz, about how they funded the World Council Churches stuff, National Council Churches stuff, to turn it all everything into this social justice movement. I forgot. I just remember there's a whole chapter on feminism in that book too, where Abby Rockefeller had he she spent however many millions of dollars in the, the '60s going to Chicago University to fund the third wave feminist movement. That was all her. She put all the family money into that. So, and we're supposed to think, well, now why would they do this? <clears throat> There's a key book by the CIA operative, uh, Miles Copeland. I can't remember. I may have mentioned this to you last time. If I'm repeating myself, forgive me. But in the appendix of his book, Game of Nations, he says, Here, here's all that I did in uh, 
Syria and the four or Egypt and then Syria throughout throughout my period where I was consulting these you know presidents, uh, Assad, senior Nasser, these people. He says, "You want to know what all I was doing there?" He says, "The whole point of it." He says, "Here's an appendix. Read these books. Guess what's in there? <laughs> Population control from the Rockefellers, CFR documents about controlling population, Bertrand Russell's books." So. All the stuff I talk about is the is the mindset of the CIA. That's why they want it. Why would you subvert the culture? Well, because the whole game plan is technocracy and and lowering the population. That's why. Well, yeah, I mean, you you have uh, you put your finger on. I mean, the Rockefellers have their hands in everything in this. I mean, they they also sponsored Kinsey and his uh, yep. sexuality yep. reports, which I led to legal changes in our system. Uh, court changes in our system. It, it it was the Pied Piper of the sexual revolution, the uh, the, the Frankfurt School, which eventually uh, set up a shop at Columbia University, and which right. published books essentially saying that middle class America is secretly fascist, and you know a, a lot of that kind of stuff. And I think that uh, the population control movement certainly emanated out of that, and the main proponent of that today. Is Bill Gates and the the, um, the misuse of the pandemic, which uh, whether or not it was lab created is another subject we don't know. Let's not even go there. But the point is, it is a real and deadly disease, and that Bill Gates has been on record as saying that he thinks that the world population needs to be culled by I think he said fifteen percent. So, you know, it's a it's something that's very much there today. They also were behind the Trilateral Commission, the yes. Bilderbergers. All of these things, you know, these uh, sex cults like this one in Los Angeles that um, Bill Maher is a member of. I, I forget what it's called, but, um, you know, all that stuff. We could do a, we could do hours of, of talk on that. But that kind of brings things up to the present. Uh, Jay, what can people watch for? Uh, uh, you know, you're, you and I, your average citizen, how can we see and detect the influence of the occult in popular culture today. And again, I'm saying this with the understanding that, or at least the, I, I suspect that most people who are involved in this are not conscious of it. They just want to get ahead. They're trying to make a buck. They want to, they know how to, which side of the, uh, you know, the bread to butter, so to speak, in terms of becoming rich and famous. So they kind of almost subconsciously will embrace these ideas but there are people who are winning and who know exactly what's going on so how do we detect this today in terms of our popular culture how do we see it in in popular music and movies i know you you're, you're an expert movie critic that's the topic of your two books esoteric hollywood what what do we see coming up the pike now in terms of this stuff well the way to detect it i would say is that most of the time if you begin to look at symbology it's pretty clear that you're going to notice uh symbolic motifs and patterns that will repeat in film um and certain directors have a tendency to constantly utilize these ideas and these themes um one of the most obvious would be uh roman polanski because he was in those circles of the of the occult elite uh, at the time of the counterculture he was you know sharon tate obviously his wife uh died in the in the manson event so what you get with with Polanski, and I don't want to be overly simplistic because a lot of times, you know, he's doing stuff that's theatrical. Uh, uh, Fearless Vampire Killer is one of his first movies a long time ago. It's sort of lampooning Satanism and Luciferianism and all this. But then at times he'll uh, he'll make another film that's a little more serious, 
uh, like the Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp, which I think attempts to to take his sat- the, the satanic perspective more serious. Um, I don't think that's a, a joke, but I think it's a somewhat serious film. Um, and it, it has this notion of apotheosis, the, the Johnny Depp character, without spoiling too much. You know, he goes through this Luciferian initiation process and then he's, he's, he achieves enlightenment at the end. Um, Rosemary's Baby, uh, you know, that's a little more, is that pop culture uh, just being silly or is it, uh, I guess you could argue either way. But I think that some of those figures, again, uh, in the 60s, if 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 they were reading Crowley and they were taking him serious, then they they would have thought, and some of them did. Uh, again, I think Timothy Leary, you know, he's in the circles of all these people too. I don't think Timothy Leary took Crowley as a joke. I think he took him fairly serious. He seemed to always project himself that way. You know, he wrote this book. Uh, uh, he did a commentary on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was about how he would liken the LSD trip to the, the process of the, the journey of the soul after death, like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Anyway, so I think I don't think that was all BS. I think he took it fairly seriously. Other characters who were influenced by Crowley that influenced pop culture also, um, uh, Illuminatus uh, trilogy guy, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, he took his mm-hmm. Crowley, he took his Crowleyanism fairly serious, I think even though he would lampoon things and make jokes at times. Uh, there's an element there if you read his uh, uh, Lucifer Rising or the one of the, I forget the other one, but um, I read those and, and they all they have elements of truth to them. So what we notice is that we'll see these patterns and these motifs in these characters and these figures and these people. By the way, I forgot another one. Uh, Terrence McKenna, a hugely influential counterculture figure uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I just delved into his books recently, um, and he actually has, uh, the well, the story is supposedly he had FBI connections, and he might have been some form of an informant. I, I'm not sure exactly. That seems plausible to me. I don't, I don't know. But, um, you know, in his book on the, on, uh, on just Food of the Gods, he says exactly what you premised the, the show with. He says, we can compare the biblical story of Genesis to the drug trip and we can see that the drug trip functions like an initiatory experience like what lucifer or satan or the 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 serpent was offering to adam and eve he says except it's the reverse of that and we we realize that really it's this the serpent who is enlightening man to realize that he can become god so the serpent character becomes the hero this is how it's uh pictured in all the gnostic tales and then we'll start to notice that quite often in, in Hollywood films and narratives, you get Gnostic presentation. I mean, the, the Matrix is a great example where the hero stuck in this uh, world is created by a lower God. And he's got to you know, try to get out of that Matrix world to become the, you know, the real Neo or whatever he's supposed to be. That's the allegory, the cave, that's Platonism, that's Gnosticism, right? Sure. The, the creator becomes the bad guy, right? Because he's the one that stuck us in this this uh, bad world, but that's why the doctrine of creation and Genesis is so crucial to be able to understand and pick this stuff out as Gnostic. But yes. So, um, uh, I forgot the last part of your question. I was giving you examples and then I forgot what, where are we going now? Right. Well, just how we can detect it when we see it. What, what, what does it look like right now? Everything is always inverted. And so, uh, you'll notice that even jokes that could be made, you know, in the eighties, I was watching some like Bill Murray movies the other day and he was making jokes and you, you start to realize that like, you can't even say that now. Like, 
So, I mean, obviously the censorship is, is one angle of it. Like you can't use these words. You can't make that joke, this joke. Uh, but beyond that, the, the, I think if you think about the hermaphrodite, so this plays a key role in Gnosticism and in alchemy, which is the idea, it's called the blending of opposites, the union of opposites. When Crowley gave that dictum that all actions are equal, he was expressing the alchemical dictum that all, all, all distinctions can just be blended into one. So that the hermaphroditic idea that there's neither male nor female, everything can just be blended, everything can become one, that is what is prepping us in terms of the most recent social engineering for, as we mentioned last time, the acceptance of transhumanism and this kind of stuff. So I think that the... Sure, where the, and the blurring of the difference between men yes, and women. And, right. um, you know, you mentioned also the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It reminds me that that was a big influence on the Beatles. Yes. And even though we admire, I, I admire the Beatles' music, nevertheless, they glamorized the use of psychedelic drugs and uh, made it, uh, brought, brought it very mainstream. There's a recent movie, I don't know if you've seen this, I've seen a few glimpses of it, which talks about using LSD as, and it, it kind of glamorizes it in a way that is reintroducing it. It kind of reminds me of like what Reefer Madness did back in the 1950s. I don't know if you've seen that, but it was supposed to be, oh, the evils of, of marijuana, smoking marijuana. And it shows young people at a party smoking marijuana. And then you see this young guy and this young woman off smoking it and going off into a room and you know you're looking at that and you're supposed to think oh this is terrible but in <laughs> fact it's like hey that looks like fun you know? <laughs> yeah. right i mean it's like it kind of in other words it sort of was doing the opposite of what it's supposed to or allegedly supposed to be doing it made it look like hey you know hey they're having a good time and i yeah. think that that's what i saw in this most recent movie about lsd i don't know if you've seen it it could, yeah. I mean, so, like the drug war had that effect. Like the Dare program uh, seemed to kind of make uh, make it look like it was something avant-garde or rebellious or cool. Yeah. Uh, so it had that reverse effect. Uh, they were, they did those programs, I think, in the '90s of like death education, where they would. Oh yeah. And that had a reverse effect. Uh, in fact, they changed the name of that to life education after people started committing suicide. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah so, that that's interesting. So, th so there is that element to it. I think uh, some people argued that when they started putting the explicit lyrics tag on albums, that actually promoted <laughs> like they started selling. Yeah, exactly. That was the one you went in and got. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, Jay, but I, I'm reaching toward the end here. So, uh, yeah, as always, I really appreciate you coming on. Your knowledge is amazing. I mean, you've really done the research and. Um, I look forward to having you back. I have a couple of ideas I want to put your way maybe in a week or two. But okay. in the meantime, let my viewers and listeners know where they can find your work and, and your website or anything else you'd like to impart. Yeah, you can just find me on YouTube, Jay Dyer. Uh, I do a lot of debates, a lot of movie analysis, a lot of philosophy lectures. Uh, and then you can go to the website, a lot of essays, movie analyses there. Uh, and then there's a shop there if you want to get my two books, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, looking at all these themes that we talked about today in uh, in movies and in symbolism and film. All right, excellent, Jay Dyer. Again, I want to thank you for joining me as always. Thank and, you. Uh, thanks a lot. All right.